0: Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. I am Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Chip Conley, the author of Wisdom at Work: The Making of a Modern Elder. Chip is a rebel hospitality entrepreneur, New York Times best-selling author, and someone that is passionate about wisdom. In this episode, we discuss The Modern Elder Academy, The Beginner's Mind, How to See Change, How to Leverage Wisdom, And much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Chip Conley. Before we bring on our guest, if you've been enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe and rate the show on Apple or Stitcher. Also, please share the episode with someone you think may get something out of it. Our mission here is to spread wisdom for everyday life, and we need your help to do so. Thank you for the support. Now, on to the show. Hi, Chip. Thank you for being on the show today. Great to
1: be with you, Joshua.
0: Well, as someone who has written the book on wisdom at work, I am uh, truly grateful to have you on In Search of Wisdom.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. Wisdom is a word that I've always flirted with, and now I'm in a full relationship with. But I, I, I don't think I really understood it until the last few years.
0: Well, I, I love it. I'm not sure I understand it. That's why I'm I'm searching for it. <laughs> yes,
1: in search of wisdom. Yes.
0: I was hoping we could begin today by discussing the modern Elder Academy. For those maybe not be familiar with you know, what is it, the mission, purpose behind it?
1: Sure. I'll give a little background. So I was a longtime boutique hotel year. I was I had my own company called Vivre. And when I sold it in the Great Recession, I was asked by the three founders of Airbnb to join them in their small little tech company. And about, and so I went full-time doing that, and I was the in-house mentor to the young CEO, Brian, but I also reported to him. About three weeks into the job, he said, Chip, we hired you for your knowledge, but what we really got was your wisdom. You are our modern elder. I was like, wait a minute, that's a lot to digest. So I'm giving you wisdom, not knowledge, or both, both, I guess, but you didn't expect the wisdom. And I was like, wow, I never really thought about the difference much. And, and then you said, and you just called me a modern elder. What the hell is that? And they said, he said, you know, you're as curious as you are wise. And he says, I think that's what a modern elder is. And so long story short is my four years full time at Airbnb, I became the modern elder in the company. Uh, I was twice the age of the average employee. I was 52 when I joined. I'm 60 now. Uh, average age in the company when I joined was 26. So long story short is when I left and started working on this book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, that's when down here in Baja, California, in Mexico, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, I came up with this idea one day. I had a Baja Aha, an epiphany where I just said, why do we not have wisdom schools? And and specifically, why don't we have midlife wisdom schools, where people come to cultivate and harvest their wisdom, maybe reframe their mindset on aging, and repurpose themselves. And so Modern Elder Academy sprang from that. And we've been doing it now for about almost three and a half years and have had 1,250 alumni from 24 countries.
0: I love it. If you can recall that aha moment what gave you the idea and the motivation to you know really kick off and and get it rolling and start your own
1: midlife modern elder academy well i think it was a few things when i sold my company around age 50 i was really in a dark place i was not in a good space and it was there are a lot of reasons for that personally professionally etc and um it was I was going through the Great Recession as an entrepreneur, struggling, and I also had five friends, uh, all men commit suicide in a two and a half year period, and all of them were in midlife. What I noticed like note to self, note to self, I have struggled through this period. I have had friends who have chosen to take their life during this period. Why is it? we Yes, we have suicide hotlines, we have lots we have therapy, we have coaches. But we don't have a whole lot societally that helps people to have schools, tools, rites of passage or rituals to understand what they're going through through midlife, because midlife actually has the most transitions of any era in someone's adult life. Okay, that was first note. Then I joined Airbnb and I was like, oh, my God, I'm twice the age of the average person here. And I started to really wonder, you know, if we're going to live longer, but power in a digital society like Airbnb, power is moving younger and then the world is changing faster. And I felt bewildered at first because I felt like I was both a mentor and intern at the same time. I'd never worked in a tech company before. There was a whole language and a whole millennial language I was just learning. So long story short is I, the aha was when I was writing the book and I said, You know, I've been interviewing people, and I just hear over and over again, people saying they feel irrelevant, or they feel obsolescent, or they feel invisible, or they feel clueless, you know, because their parents came from a generation where there was sort of a career path you were on. And your career was less episodic, you know, you sort of like, it wasn't like you have this three years here and then five, that five years there. Is we're more like there was a little bit of more of a consistency. And the world was a little bit more consistent. You could sort of count on things. So long story short is I, I think there was a, a sense for me that maybe my experience a few years ago and my friends' experiences who committed suicide or actually chose to take their lives – were an indicator of just how serious the, the problem is out there. And then I did some more research and just saw how con- <laughs> confused. Midlife crisis as a term was created in the 1960s, 1965. And that was way before we had anything like what we have today in the world we're in, you know, where people do feel they're becoming irrelevant faster. You know, I, I can't believe how many people I've talked to in their mid-30s in certain industries like advertising or entertainment or software engineers who feel over the hill at 35. (laughs) But I think part of this is, and I'm going to say one last thing and then I'm going to shut up. Part of this is really speaking to the idea of knowledge and wisdom again. There are brilliant people who have a functional knowledge that is deep, rich, and world-class, but are clueless at emotional intelligence, or they're clueless at leadership, or they're clueless at a bunch of other things. They, and they create companies sometimes that are become billion-dollar companies, but they have zero background to be – well, unless they microwave their emotional intelligence, they don't have the background to be running the kind of company they're running. So in the last few years, there's been a, a rise of the generalist, a a, great, a greater sense of value in why, and why and David ranges David Epstein's book ranges, you know, sort of like one of those books that has really amplified the idea that knowledge is local and wisdom is global. And when I say that, what I mean is your knowledge is quite often quite specific; it's narrow and it's in a particular area, and there's value in that. Although it can be obsolescent, wisdom, on the other hand, is global. In the sense that it, wisdom has value across all knowledge areas, and it's less likely to be obsolescent. So those are my thoughts.
0: I really appreciate that context and flushing that out. It, it seems like the midlife crisis is definitely misunderstood. We think of someone buying a sports car, but there's much more going on under underneath that.
1: Actually, I think in some ways what it is, it's... Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, depth psychologist, he sort of said, listen, the first half of your life, your operating system is your ego, and the second half of your life, your operating system is your soul. And there's there's an operating system change going on around midlife. And sometimes it's the circumstances in our lives that pile up that force the change upon us. But what's challenging is when Someone is noticing the change and that's where the sports car or the affair or you know the new hairstyle <laughs> or whatever comes into play because they double down in their middle essence, which is the, what we go through around 45 to 60. In their middle essence, the emotional, hormonal, and physical changes that, that are the adult corollary to adolescence. We take ourselves back to adolescence because we think we just have to double down on the ego. And maybe a little more Botox will solve that. And I, I, I'm hoping that part of, but partly by offering other choices like a midlife wisdom school, Modern Elder Academy, people can start realizing that maybe it's it's books, not Botox, that they need at this age.
0: You write in the book about this exercise of asking five times, "What business are you in?" if you were to apply that exercise to to mea you know what what business are you in there
1: well we're in the business of helping people feel that their the aging is a blessing not a curse we live in a society where aging is perceived as you know you hit your midlife crisis and then what do you have to look forward to ah, getting old so i think you know it, Our core mission is to help people see the unexpected pleasures of aging and shift their mindset around aging and wisdom. And in a society, in an American society, that in many ways has the cult of youth and beauty and brawn, the playing field we tend to play on is one that is very much physical. It's very much the physical, how we look, how physically adept we are how beautiful we are or handsome we are etc and what i help people what i help what mea helps people to see is that's not the only playing field you can play on there's the playing field of your heart and your mind and your soul and and maybe you're supposed to retire not retire completely but semi-retire from the cult of the body as being the physical the, the manifestation of who has power? Who has who gets attention? And there's a grading a process of actually becoming a student and a beginner at what it means to focus on your heart, your soul, your mind um, in new ways, also in service of something bigger than your ego. And that's a bit of a mind blowing experiment or experience for someone if they have spent their life in Los Angeles driving a fast car. And then, you know, at age 50, getting a faster car and a younger girlfriend. But I've seen it firsthand. (laughs) In fact, there's somebody who's here at MEA right now who's going through this right now, realizing that just constantly upping the ante of trying to preserve their youth is a, a battle that they will consistently lose.
0: What would you say are your hopes or or vision for for m e a or or other wisdom schools in the future?
1: Well, long ago, there used to be called mystery schools, which were sort of wisdom schools. There were, you know it goes back to Greek times and I would love that the idea of a, a midlife wisdom school becomes a category of higher education or even hospitality where there where we become a catalyst for other for profit or non-profit entrepreneurs to go out and create their version of a midlife wisdom school. Well, we have a second campus now that we've purchased that will be up and running by 2023 outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's 2600 acres. It's a gorgeous property. It already has a bunch of beautiful homes on it, but we'll be adding more. You know, we're not going to have 100 dots on the map in the next 10 years of MEAs or you know midlife wisdom schools. But if people could look at us and see what we're doing, see the level of evangelism that we have amongst our alums, see the media attention that we've been getting, and then they say, gosh, we want to create our version of that. I would love that. So it's very rare for – in the world I come from, which is for-profit entrepreneur, it's very rare for a for-profit entrepreneur to say, please copy me, copy what we're doing, emulate us, et cetera. But that's what, I, that's what I would love to see. Uh, and I also you – know, last thought on this is you know, it was 62 years ago that Peter Drucker, the famous management theorist, popularized the term knowledge worker and he basically said knowledge workers will rule the world in the future and people looked at him like what the heck are you saying what is a knowledge worker and of course at that point the size of a computer was no, no smaller than a, than a room but he saw the future and, and today 7 of the 10 most valuable companies in the world are tech companies and the ultimate bastion of uh, or you know habitat for knowledge workers so knowledge is a you know is we're awash in knowledge. Google has all the world's knowledge right there at your fingertips. But what's scarce is wisdom, and and I do think that if we can move to a future where we start to actually coin a term, wisdom workers, which speaks to people who are not just knowledge workers, but they actually are they have a an acutely effective means of cultivating and harvesting their own wisdom as well as that in others as well i think those wisdom workers will be extremely valuable in a an era where we are increasingly replacing people with artificial intelligence but artificial intelligence has yet to show that it has wisdom
0: that's really helpful in a great transition to what I would love to discuss with you is about the perspective or mindset of of this wisdom worker. I, I've been really fascinated in, in researching for this conversation of how you think and, and see the world. So I wanted to run a few kind of timeless concepts and get your thoughts on it. And the first is something you've written about quite a bit, the beginner's mind.
1: Well, I, you know, there's... I'm going, to, I'm going to fracture this quote, but it's a quote I think came from a Zen, Zen Buddhist leader who said something to the effect that the, uh, the, someone with a beginner's mind has many options. Someone who's an expert has very few. And I think that the beginners, this idea of curiosity and wisdom, I think is really interesting. Curiosity opens up possibilities and wisdom distills down what's essential. So the beginner's mind is what, a, what curiosity is about. Curiosity speaks to the idea of an openness of possibilities and a desire to learn and a willingness to be a neophyte or to be new at something. And often in adulthood, when we're new at something, we feel awkward. because you know, When we were a kid, when we felt new at something, we knew we, it was happening every day. So you just had to be comfortable with it and yes, you were awkward, and that's why adolescents are awkward and et cetera. But you know, you're 45 years old and you're learning, you know, I'm I'm sixty years old and I'm learning Spanish, which of course I live in Mexico. <laughs> I should, but you know, there is a mantra and a mindset in my head, which is I'm too old to learn Spanish. So a beginner's mind is a foundational piece of learning how to move into a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. And you can study Carol Dweck at Stanford, a psychologist there, her book and her work on mindset, which she said fixed and growth mindset. So a beginner's mind helps to allow you to be new, fresh and trying and be open to trying new experiences over the course of your lifetime. And if there's an elixir to life, that is it.
0: In a talk that you gave, you spoke about, right-sizing your ego in this transition period to airbnb how does that connect with the beginner's mindset of maybe right-sizing the the ego a bit
1: well so yeah just background there i was for 24 years i've been ceo of my own boutique hotel company grew it from one person to 3500 people in 52 hotels It was an exercise – it was not exercise exclusively on Chip's ego, but Chip's ego got stroked a whole lot. And I was in charge – I was the founder and CEO of this company. did not have a co-CEO, did not have a board of directors, you know, sort of – But I was not an autocrat. I was hopefully a relative, you know, I tried to call myself a karmic capitalist, what goes around comes around. And sometimes it takes a long time for it to come around for the people who deserve something bad to happen to them. Not that I dwell on that, but the bottom line is, what I think is that for me, I had to shift out of my identity. And this is one of the things we really help people with here at MEA, is you... Midlife is now perceived as 40 years long, 35 to 75, which is a a heck of a long time. And if you are carrying all of your responsibilities, obligations, identities, mindsets from the past and not learning how to edit them, you have got – you've got a, a midlife marathon full of baggage. So it is around 40, 45, 50 that we need to move from the accumulation stage in life to the discerning editing phase. And that editing phase allows you to let go of things that no longer serve you but try on new identities because, you know, you can't try on new things, learn new things very easily when you're so distracted with a bunch of other things. And so a beginner's mind is part of the premise that you have to let some stuff go before you can create the fertile ground to try something new. So I would not suggest that someone tries to have a beginner's mind or tries to be overly curious or tries to go into this mindset when you haven't cleared the decks of some stuff that you just need to let go of first. We call this the great midlife edit. We have an actual day-long program specifically at, at our week-long program that's specific to that and our even ritual at sunset that people go through that actually allows them to let go of that because... When you let go of that, you are surprised by how liberated you feel and how much space you bring into your life. And that's what I had to do when I joined Airbnb. I was not the CEO at Airbnb. I was no longer the sage on the stage. I was the guide on the side. And what that meant is I was not – if I felt successful when my name was in the paper or my photo was in the paper or I was being given the credit of being founder or CEO – then I would have been sorely disappointed in my experience at Airbnb because that was not my role. My role was to help the three young founders be successful as leaders, so that they could create a successful company that you know grew into a, a global hospitality brand. And that was a big shift for me because I, my ego really did. I, you know, privately the thing that most got me excited is when there was a new article about Joie de Vivre and a big picture of me about it and. You know, I was an admiration addict and I had to move out of that admiration addiction to sort of be more of like of service. How am I of service here? And well-timed for the era of my life where you sort of move into looking at how are you of service? How are you living a legacy and I'm leaving a legacy?
0: If my math is accurate, I'm really curious about the couple of years that you had in that transition from CEO to joining Air- Airbnb, how did those couple years help with a bit of that transition and identity?
1: Great question. A lot of people don't do that math. So yes, I there were about two years in between. And there was a book I wanted to write called Emotional Equations, and I had time to write that. I spent still some time in the hotel company. I'd sold it, but I actually was still a shareholder and the executive chairman. So I spent a little bit of time there. I just created space in my life. I started hanging out in a hammock in my backyard and listening to Ricky Lee Jones and reading books And that I wanted to read for a while. So there was a little bit of that. And during that time, I also came up with this idea to create a website called Fest 300, which was a, a website dedicated to helping people find the 300 best festivals in the world and I was a founding board member of the Burning Man Festival. And so that, that's pretty well known. And I'm, I've been known as a festival junkie, you know, going to all kinds of festivals, including religious pilgrimages. So I said, you know what, there's more people out there like me who would probably want a, a site like that. So I went around the world to 36 festivals in 16 countries one year. So I did all of that, but I, you know, there's a, Quote from Robert De Niro in, in the movie, The Intern, when he says, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. And I knew I had music still inside of me. I just wasn't sure whom to share it with and who would want my wisdom. I wouldn't have even called it wisdom back then. And that's when Divine Intervention came along and I got a call from Brian Chesky, the young CEO and founder of, co-founder of Airbnb.
0: Oh, I love that. And you bring up festivals. And I, I had a question around that. And maybe now is a good time to to touch on it. I was speaking last week with the author of Wiser, a book that came out last year. Are you familiar with it? I
1: have it right. Where is it? It's right here.
0: <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the components of wisdom that Dr. Jesse discussed was spirituality not necessarily religion or religiosity, but around this connection, non-attachment with the world, how would you say in terms of practice and festivals, how does that resonate with you when you kind of hear that?
1: Well, I think the more digital we get, the more ritual we need. And ritual is often, historically ritual was in, in the form of religions and, and festivals. And, and interestingly, relig- religions and festivals have a lot of history together. Carnival as a, as a at this point, bacchanalian, crazy hedonic festival came from the Catholics, <laughs> came from Chris, Christian roots. So what I would just say is that I'm a being, and I've spent, I spent a lot of time studying Arnold Van Jenep, who's a Dutch anthropologist, as well as Emile Durkheim, a French sociologist, about rites of passage and in nature, as well as Emile Durkheim called collective effervescence. So, collective effervescence is when you're in a festival environment, or it doesn't have to be a festival, it could be any environment. It really, when we're doing a one week cohort here at MEA, it happens with just 20 people together. Your sense of ego separation starts to evaporate. And what comes in its place is this sense of communal joy. So I think certain kinds of collective experiences, when you're going through something that's powerful, you're in a state of awe. We're doing something here today, this afternoon, that I'm leading an awe walk. How do you take an awe walk with other people? Silently and in a way to, to really slow it down enough to appreciate nature when it, so the bridge there to spirituality is you know the ultimate cathedral for many people their ultimate divine intoxication happens in nature it happens in the cathedral of a redwood grove or a beach walk or a mountain hike on a trail that is you know got spectacular vistas and it whether it's spirituality or awe or collective effervescence what they all speak to is the idea of getting out of the ghetto of your mind and the self-absorption that we often feel as humans, which often our ego has a lot to do with that. And to respect, to first of all, witness, respect, and then maybe devote oneself to something bigger than themselves. And to me, spirituality is, is that so... You absolutely can be. You know how many people are spiritual but not religious. That is, 50 years ago, there wasn't a category in a questionnaire with that line, and now that line may represent the largest percentage of Americans. But to be spiritual is a, a fascinating thing because to be religious is easier to document and clarify because often it, it means there's a dogma and a and a an institution. That you are devoting yourself to, to be spiritual, <laughs> you know it. It's like a life coach. There are so many life coaches in the world, and what defines who's a life coach and who's not? What defines who's spiritual and who's not? I'm not here to be the arbiter of who's, what is spirituality, but what I will say in terms of Doctor Jesse's book and his great research he's done, he's really speaking to the idea that wisdom is about humility, and I think being spiritual is a form of being humble. It's to recognize that the world doesn't revolve around you. You didn't create that gorgeous ocean in front of you. And that in that respect and humility for something bigger than you, there's an empathy that also comes through. And it's that humility and empathy to me that are sort of core to what his book is about, wiser. So I think spirituality – is you know makes sense in that in that context.
0: That is so good, Chip. I love it. If I was to ask one one question, I I think it would be this this next one here around just developing your own awareness. I have really been been struck by what seems to be this high sense of awareness and. On the Tim Ferriss podcast, you you mentioned to the you know the the Billboard question that he asked, which I love, the Oscar Wilde quote of "Be yourself; everyone else is taken." Could you elaborate a bit on on this being yourself? How do we how do we do that? And
1: well, it has the risk of being trite. Of course, Oscar Wilde's witty quote is, I love, but the risk is that people just say. You know, just trust yourself, and you know, just just believe in yourself. And what do I think about all this? I, I think that just using words to describe an action without actually helping people to understand what are the, what are the paths of doing that, you know, may not be that helpful. To me, it's about deep listening. You know, there's three three kinds of listening we can have. You know, maybe maybe more. I'll tell you about three, but there's actually probably more because there's a there's there's something beyond the third one. But the, the kinds of listening you can have is. Internal listening, what's going on inside of you, and being able to be self aware and self identifying enough to know what what's going on emotionally, what ideas are percolating, etc there's the ability to listen to another person and one on one have uh, that kind of listening conversation, and then there's the ability to listen to the field you know, and that field could be. You know, as a facilitator in a workshop, it could be a comedian on stage or a politician on stage. It could be maybe this is where it takes to the fourth the cosmic consciousness of something bigger than just what's in your field there. And I think when we help people to learn how to listen on all of those levels, especially, I think true wisdom is being able to listen on all of those levels simultaneously. It is hard to do them simultaneously because when you're listening to that person talk and really giving them attention and full presence, are how do you listen to yourself and to the field at the same time? So what I would just say is that the act of becoming comfortable with yourself, being authentic, being yourself, is the act of learning how to listen. And it's learning how to listen inside, and so when someone says I, "I really want to explore that," it's like okay here's the here's some ways you can listen to yourself. You can meditate, and guess what? A lot of ideas are going to come up, and guess what you're going to be listening to all those ideas while they're coming up. You can journal, you can listen to through your body awareness of doing yoga or some kind of something athletic, and see what happens. Some people you know going running on a beach brings an endorphin high, but also brings epiphanies because there's like, that's the download. That's what happens. Figuring out what are the habitats for some people like being in a hot spring, like just by yourself, you know, that would be a place where true listening can happen for you going and gardening in your backyard. Maybe that's where the listening happens, but helping a person to open up the channel. So the listening can occur is to me the the wise advice I might give to someone who says, I feel really out of touch with what it means to be myself. And that's a much longer answer is available, but not now. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's really helpful. I, I greatly appreciate the context around that. And to follow that just for a minute longer, to provide an example, I think, of kind of charting your own course Many authors narrate their own book, and I think sometimes maybe they try to be professional narrators, and it doesn't quite work. And the audio version of your book, Wisdom at Work, may be the best that I've ever heard. Thank you. you. You didn't try to be a professional narrator. It didn't seem like it was simply like a casual, just lovely conversation with the listener. What was going on in your thinking before <laughs> you sat down in the booth to to record that?
1: Oh gosh, what a great question! I'm I'm really appreciating your questions <laughs> because that was my third audiobook, and quite frankly, the first time I had done my audiobooks, I had hated the experience because you know if you just get a, a slight intonation wrong or an accent wrong, the engineer will say, "Sorry, but could you do that sentence again?" And so reading a whole book could take two, two full eight hour days, but it's a three day journey when you're actually having to do corrections. And so I felt so rigid, so uncomfortable that when this book came along, I said, what's, what does wisdom tell me on this? And I said, wisdom told me like, just be yourself again, back to be yourself and just enjoy it. Have fun with the process. So and fortunately, I had an engineer who was not so rigid. He was open to occasionally a little mishap that he didn't try. That's the key because if you had, if I had that point of view, and then I had someone standing on top of me <laughs> telling me every single sentence had to be re- reread, that wouldn't have worked very well. So we we got to a good understanding on the front end, and I got into a flow. And instead of losing my voice, which is what happens so often when you're doing three days in a row of this, I didn't. I because I wasn't straining. I wasn't. It wasn't coming from a place of acting. I wasn't acting. So, yeah. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I'm glad you did.
0: Yeah, it was lovely. And many examples throughout your career, probably, of doing what maybe feels right, that may be counterintuitive to to what everyone else is doing, and it's uh, really remarkable.
1: Yeah, and that's been my career. I, you know, my first book I ever wrote was called "The Rebel Rules." daring to be yourself in business. And, you know, that was twenty, twenty three years ago I wrote that. And I wrote it at a time when I realized I was a rebel. And that and I have continued to be a rebel. Not just for the sake of being a rebel, but I'm open to having that archetype associated with me. It's interesting to be a rebel hospitality person because hospitality is all about gracious, friendly You know, service and sometimes being a rebel means being in your face and being. So, how do you, how are you gracious while also being, you know, a shitster? So, that's been part of my alchemy. I think wisdom, and maybe this is a good, uh, maybe something toward the end, comment. Wisdom is about alchemy, it is about the alchemy of curiosity and wisdom, it is about the alchemy of gravitas and levity, you know? What's weighty and what is light, maybe humorous. Alchemy speaks to this idea of there's a perfect mix, just the right mixologist of knowing when you have this ingredient and that ingredient. You put them together and they are better together than they would have been on their own. I have been called a social alchemist. I will hold on to that till I die because it means I'm a bit of a mixologist of people. But I think that understanding wisdom as being about alchemy is a really important component of understanding wisdom.
0: What are you still curious about moving forward?
1: I will be curious till the day I die. And I think most importantly right now, I'm curious about how do we create regenerative communities? Our modern elder academies are are going into the direction of doing a regenerative community where people actually live there and they, there's an academy and we have students coming and going every week, but we also have people who are doing sabbaticals there and people who are actually owning homes there and being part of a wisdom community. I think the idea of the 21st century is ready for regenerative communities, just like the 20th century was ready for retirement communities. I think it's time for us to retire retirement as a concept and, and to recognize that there's enough wisdom for us for a lifetime to give back. And a regenerative community is, is our, one of our ways to do that. I love it. After everyone
0: reads Making of a, a Modern Elder, are there any any book recommendations that, that come to mind that you maybe mm, like to share?
1: My God, I love this book cast right here. Isabel Wilkerson, very great book on the history of not just racism, but the caste system in the United States and, and maybe globally. I think it, there's a huge amount of wisdom there. Gosh, I Love the 100-Year Life, written by two British uh, academics, which speaks to what will the world look like when half of us are living to age 100, which is, the, which is currently what public health expect in the, modern, in, the, in the developing world if you're born today there's a 50% chance you live to age 100. Well, what does the world look like if that's the case? That's fascinating. Think again, Adam Grant's new book, which really speaks to being having a, a, a new mind, a new perspective. Yeah, I, those are some of my favorites lately.
0: This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in, in learning more?
1: Uh, you can learn more at the modernelderacademy.com website. You can also find me on LinkedIn, which is where we post a lot of um, my articles that I write. I write a daily blog called Wisdom Well. Um, You can find the blog on the Modern Elder Academy website. But we also post it uh, in social media, especially LinkedIn. So, yeah. And there's a chipconley.com website as well.
0: Well, awesome. We'll link all of that into the show notes and the Wisdom Well daily email is great. I subscribe to it and love it. So yeah, I encourage everyone else to do so as well. Chip Conley, I thank you so much for your time today. This has really been a pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you, Joshua.
0: Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleadercom slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Write to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.